0: I'm preparing for life here on this earth, or I'm preparing for life in the next life to come with God, with Jesus. But either way, I'm preparing for life. And so if I'm doing that, then God continues to
1: transform me. Friends, it's Morgan, and welcome back to another Become Good Soil podcast. If you've been listening for quite some time, episode 74 was titled Experiential Therapy. And I had the gift of bringing into the studio my friend, mentor, father, hero in the faith, Bill Loki. I met Bill Loki when I attended on site workshops, and he was the senior clinical director, which he served at that post for over a decade. He spent over the last 20 years. Uh, leading therapy for marriages and groups individuals doing a lot of experiential therapy works with role-playing and using props to get to deep trauma in order that god can heal and restore bill's become a dear friend and we had the joy of that earlier conversation bill's life has taken a wild turn and already at the time of that conversation he was facing a great battle with prostate cancer And it's advanced rather quickly, and he is nearing the end of this phase of life, preparing to lead to life after life. That's the phrase that Bill has used, and it's such a winsome phrase that's helped me grieve and celebrate and align with the truth of what God is doing to complete Bill's days on this earth, to shepherd him to the consummation of his earthly apprenticeship, as C.S. Lewis would say. And so I brought Bill into the studio to give some honest encouragement, some honest challenge, some honest reflection, some honest prayer as he has prepared and is preparing for this transition from life to life. Bill, before we go anywhere else, I'd love for you to pray. I'd love for you to pray and invite God to shepherd our time and pray for agreement and power for what He may intend to do through the series for our like hearted allies around the globe. Would you pray for us? God, I want to pray
0: a prayer for everyone that's able to hear this. I want to pray the blessing that that these people hearing my words would hear your words right now. They would hear Morgan's in my conversation, would hear a conversation that's really beneath it and above it. It's from the Holy Spirit. As you hear our words, they would hear your words and completely forget what Bill Oakey said, (laughs) Um, that God, they would know that you love them and see them and hear them in their most hurt and most lonely places. And I pray that be a blessing upon them and also I pray for them to, to not only hear that, but for their hearts to be changed so that someone and maybe more than one today who is full of anger and hurt toward his wife toward one of his children, toward a parent, toward a friend, toward a boss, who maybe you've been really betrayed, and you're not sure you'll ever get over betrayal, nor will you ever be able to trust anyone again. I pray, Lord, right now that you might be able to reach into their heart of hearts And help them to feel and experience being loved by you, who instead of betraying them, allowed yourself to be betrayed. So that you could love us without betrayal. I pray that people would be able to begin to feel the desire to have a relationship with you and to feel so close and to feel loved. And then they begin to find that little bit by little bit, like a melting icicle, the water begins to run down into finally a raging river. They find that their heart has slowly been changed to be able to love. Because Jesus, you've told us, I mean, if we're going to love, we're going to be hurt. We're going to be betrayed. And so, God, I pray for your redemptive power and your transforming work that you make us, more of us, into people who are willing to love and to willing to sit with the pain when we're hurt. And to trust you, God, that Jesus, you will meet our needs. As impossible as that may seem. And I pray that you'll bless our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren as our love allows your love to seep through and to keep changing hearts. Through the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Four years ago, got diagnosed with um, prostate cancer, and my doctor had said, even if it's prostate cancer, it's still not necessarily serious. Prostate cancer, usually, you know, in men over 50 is really, really common, and we just kind of watch it most of the time. It's not very aggressive. So when we got back to the biopsy, he said, um, I still had that in my mind. And he said, Yeah, I'm really sorry. He said, This is the most aggressive cancer that there is. He said, This is this is really a bad kind. So he said, you got to get going on this and talking about, yeah, this is the kind of cancer that kills people, did surgery and then found out it had already spread um, metastasized to the bone. In this process of four years, while not only fighting the cancer and going on three clinical trials and on my second round of chemo, there was so much talk of this may be the end of your life and so much talk of death and being prepared for death with God that at first there really is that that shock Um, yes one of the things I've said is is don't worry nothing can prepare you for the news of your own death when you hear that bad news that that may be what's going to happen it's it's just a shock for a while and it's just the way it is and I think that's a part of the process I think it's an important part of the process but what I found was at first is it really took me and Laurie and myself also into this journey of preparing to meet Jesus face to face, if that's what it was going to be and moving through the fear, moving through the um, pain of, wow, I thought I had maybe at least 20, 25 more years or so. And it took a while. It took a while. There's been a real evolution in a process then I found there was this place of like, okay, the veil, as we, you and I have talked, you know, the veil seems really thin between here and, and heaven. And, and um, I began to refer to it as life after life instead of a death. And then what I found was I became much at peace with that. I'm actually looking forward to um, eternity with Jesus, especially if we didn't do anything like more chemo that I probably got. Three months left to live. And so, really telling my kids that, um, preparing everybody, we all came together at Christmas and at Thanksgiving. And I'll never forget on New Year's Day, I'm saying to Laurie, well, just kind of surpassed three months. I'm into January. I'm in extra time. But I began to hear conversation of people that were really good friends of ours or even a couple of our kids. And they were talking about the spring, the summer, in the near future, and about making plans for Laurie without me. And I remember one particular night when everybody was gone, and I sat down with Laurie, and I was like, something inside of me just revolted. Something inside of me first felt hurt. And then I began to realize it was like, wait they are acting upon what I've prepared them for. I've told them I'm dying this year. And I found myself once I'd kind of laid out the preparations, so to speak, and and said a lot of what I knew to say and tried to love everybody as best as I can, I found myself kind of putting myself on a shelf waiting. And I began to realize That that is the thing that I believe Satan would love for me to do more than anything, which is to die before I die. Mm. To be prepared to die and sit on a shelf and wait. There was a Bible study that um, my wife and I listened to a couple of weeks ago. It was on Romans 12, and it was about God transforming us. And I was like, God only transforms people who are alive. Mm. And um, Satan would love to seduce me into dying. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to physically die. God's got a date; you know, He knows when I'm going to go. He knows a plan, and I still may die within the next month or two. I don't know. But what I realized was I was preparing for life, not preparing for death. Because life is either I'm preparing for life here on this earth, or I'm preparing for life in the next life to come with God, with Jesus. But either way, I'm preparing for life. And so if I'm doing that, then God continues to transform me, continues to change me. And so something happened inside of me, and it was just like this little revolt. It was like, no, I'm not preparing to die. What else does God have in store for me to transform me, to become more like him in the next weeks, months? And then heck, who knows what might happen. I might live more years, but also in the life yet to come, that it's it's not about stopping and and putting myself on a shelf and waiting to die. But instead, it's continuing to be transformed by the Holy Spirit for this life and for the life to come. And so it's still about living. Mm. And um. And that's one of the first things I guess I wanted to say, be preparing yourself for life, not just for death. I want to be about God's transformation in me and what he's doing through me. And only
1: people that are alive get to do that. I think what you're illuminating has so much application. I want to know the will of God. I want to walk more deeply in the will of God, but that always happens synonymously with being transformed so that I see clearly, I hear clearly. And as you're sharing, Bill, I'm, I'm just aware of how practical these big ideas are. Like I think of this morning, so I'm going through some really tough relational challenges with my 14-year-old daughter. And I'm trying, and I'm trying, <laughs> and I suck at it. is what it feels like. And as you're sharing this morning, I'm aware internally, the temptation is to die while I'm still alive. It's to quit. It's to let something in that relationship die to settle with some sort of belief. She's better off without me. Like I, I, the net effect yeah. of me in her life is negative. That's the script. That's the tape that runs in my head. And so I should just stay away from her. I should just create distance. Her life would be better if I am not involved. And this morning when I was praying and in, in reflecting on life to life, and so long as we have breath in our lungs, the invitation is to stay in God. Keep doing the work and choosing relationship, choosing love. And so I, I wrote her a text this morning and just, she slept at a friend's house and just said, uh, Abby, hope you had a great night. Um, I'm, I'm free this afternoon and evening and I'd enjoy a date with you if you're willing. Can you think about something we can do together that would be fun for you? I'm open to about anything or we don't have to do anything. Just giving you the option. I love you, dad. And. What I think is important to reflect is I almost didn't send that text. I yeah. almost said, "You know what? I, she's better off without me. This idea of life to life, if we were to embrace it in our everyday life that we're we're just preparing for even more to come. It has very practical implications in in risking you know faith, hope, and love, yeah. Yeah,
0: you know, parenting teenagers, I don't know that anyone is an expert because teenagers, number one, they're all so different from each other in some ways. And then there's the there's the whole thing that's happening um, between um, around 13 to 20, 21, 22, where every single um, neuron in the brain, every cell in the brain is being is being replaced. They're all being called out and replaced, and and so when we sometimes say our teenagers are out of their minds, it's like, well, they kind of really are. All their brain cells are being replaced <laughs> at an amazingly rapid rate. But I remember, you know, some teenagers do it maybe openly and and against you, and they're arguing or whatever. But but I remember more of what I did was just go underground when I was even 11 and I bought motor scooter Vespa motor scooter from my brother and my dad said just drive it on our street we had a really really a street with no cars on it I was like sure and I and I I said that uh, when I got to the end of our street the pavement on our street looked very much like the pavement on the next street and so I just (laughs) kind of turned and kept going and kept going and before I knew it I was miles away from the house and Uh, and I was driving all over the place, but I made sure I was home before five when my dad got home, I wanted to make sure and go underground as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even have to deal with the the conflict as a parent. I think that sometimes the best we do as parents is we just make clumsy attempts, but sometimes I think one of the greatest compliments is then when later on, you know, there are teenage kids tell their friends and they roll their eyes and go, my dad, he embarrasses me or whatever. But it's like so much better than my dad, he's not in my life. My dad, he's absent. My dad doesn't care. I have asked people a number of times, "When's, when's one of those moments when you felt very loved, if not most loved by one of your parents or by an adult when you were a kid? And almost every single time I've asked the question, the answer when they think of it is not, oh man, when they took me to Disney World or when we went on this great vacation. It's usually a moment when the parent or the adult is just hanging out with the child and the child feels like they want to be with them in that moment. And it's not about teaching. It's not about instructing. It's just... Hanging out, um and that's almost always the answer they give me is they'll tell me a specific time of yeah, I remember sitting on the back steps drinking a milkshake with my dad or my mom or whatever, and I think for me, those have been the times uh, I'm so grateful for, first of all,' say with my kids, my three boys, when I didn't have much money at all. I remember going um camping you know a couple of times. With them, And I remember just going to Percy Warner Park and just wading in the creek and those things that I just thought I was doing to have fun with them, I think are my best memories with them, just being and hanging out and maybe a teaching moment would arise in there. Um, and if so, it was usually very short, but most of the time it was just being with and. I don't know if I'm just really fortunate or whatever, but to this day, my kids are now in their 30s and they still enjoy hanging out. My wife, Laurie, when um, it was a second marriage and so we have a blended family. And so our first year we were married, um, her younger daughter, Brittany, uh, lived with us for about a year. And I remember one day I didn't know Brittany very well. We were seeming to come together. And Brittany and Laurie were kind of having this argument, as mothers and daughters do, young adult daughters, and and finally I just Brittany went up to her room, and I just said, kind of went up, knocked on the door, and I said, "Well, we'll see how this goes." And I just said, "Brittany, come on, let's go for a ride." And to my surprise, she said, "Okay." And we got in the car, and she and I just the two of us just rode around Franklin. And just talking. And um, to me, that was one of the really first moments of feeling a, a, a much closer connection with her, which has continued to grow. And it was, I had nothing that I was going to tell her other than talk a little bit about, yeah, it's tough, you know, going through um, the, the, some of the things that families go through, but mostly it was listening and just being with. And it, those moments when we don't know what to say, it's okay. We don't have to know what to say. Just be, come alongside and be with that
1: person. There are quite a few younger men that are decades kind of behind you on the masculine journey, and they're actually considering marriage, um, considering marriage or considering a remarriage. Um, and there's different emotions that come up with that of... Um, what do I do with this desire? And even sometimes either ambivalence or fear. I'm curious if there's anything in that category that's on your heart to share with some younger men.
0: Hmm. There is something that, you know, gets stimulated in our brain, certainly as we think, oh, wow, there's someone here that likes being with me. And I love being with her. And, and, um suddenly you've got energy for things you didn't have energy for, for a while. And, and so it's an exciting time. Um, And I do believe that relationship, I do believe that marriage is somehow really about helping us to prepare for our relationship with Jesus some point down the road when we're in the life after life. um, I believe it's, it's on purpose that when we get married it's not just that romantic love from then on out. It's got to be also the person that we get most frustrated with because they know it's better than anybody else. If you get married or if you've experienced marriage and you realize it's two years later and why are you so frustrated or why are you so hurt or angry? I think there's, um, in a sense, there's some design in that in intimate relationships because nobody else knows you as well. And nobody else has also experienced you losing it <laughs> as well as your spouse yep. does. Whether you've been angry or hurt or you, you've done things the wrong way. And so it's also a little bit scary to go, well, is this person going to ever really love me? Because they've seen me at my absolute worst. But that's one of the most healing things about love in a marriage, I think, is is when you can be loved after they've seen you be at your worst. I think if you're considering being married, I know a lot of people that have done pre-marriage counseling and some things like that. And for most, I think it's so difficult to imagine what are some of the things that this fiance, if that's the case, that they might do that would completely crumble or betray you a feeling that you could have any confidence in them. You may go, but they would never do that. It's like, okay, that's fine. And then I want you to imagine being with that person, that fiance, with that feeling of, I've lost this trust. And then I want, what I like to do is then ask the Holy Spirit, how would you love that person? How could you show me to love that person after that thing has happened. Hmm. And I think it's one of the strongest ways we can begin to go, whoa, can you imagine feeling that much pain and asking the Holy Spirit, would you show me how to love her right
1: now? I have a follow-up question, and the response might be very similar to what you just shared, but I'm actually very curious if it is similar or different same posture but now it is a married couple they're 10 years in they're 20 years in they have hurt each other they have harmed each other and like you said i really appreciated that language of he may be feeling that he has been more wronged than she has been wronged and so frankly he's thinking about what the hell do i do 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 i get out and like you said there's a big categories of stories of God intervened, God rescued. We didn't get divorced. And then there's this gaping hole of stories. Well, it did fall apart. The marriage did die. Right. And so we're sitting in front of that and you have a man who feels very hurt and he's ambivalent about moving forward. What would you say to him? I think the first thing I might
0: say is, and coming from a place of that, I've been that man. Yes. um, That I did get a divorce. If you're trying to think, well, what do I do? And do I go forward? What is it that I'm afraid of going forward into? I had a wise man to ask me one time in the midst of that period of my life. Said if especially if you've already found someone else that you kind of like to be with, said, um, what is it you're most afraid of losing? Not in that person, if you were to leave them and go back to your marriage, but what is it you're afraid of losing in yourself if you go back to your marriage? Hmm. And I remember going, what? And then I thought about it, and I was like, oh yeah, there are parts of me that didn't feel like I could really show up. There were parts of me that didn't feel acceptable to that person, but to this other person, oh, that seemed acceptable. And his point was, you just go with that second person long enough and you'll quit feeling acceptable too because you'll wind up feeling the same shame and whatever else. The point was, find what it is that you feel like you can't show up fully in, in your marriage, And then go and try to show up fully in that in your marriage. It's not like go back to your marriage and just pretend because you'll wind up a couple of years down the road just as miserable or worse. But it's going, okay. how do I show up for real with my full heart? And can my marriage withstand that? Can can I be really me? Now, I'm also continuing to pray that the Holy Spirit continues to make me into a better me. But so many times, the marriage dies when one or both people have just finally withdrawn their heart. It's not that what they've done has become so grievous that people can't forgive. That's really not the reason most people get divorced. The reason for most people getting divorced is because one or both have withdrawn their heart, they've protected themselves, and they're saying, I'm just not going to show up like I used to anymore. Or maybe I never did because I was always too afraid. Mm -hmm. When we really step into our truth of going, you know what, I'm really scared to tell you, but I've been really lonely in our marriage for 15 years, or I've felt really hurt, or I've felt unable to know how to approach you sexually, or I have felt unable to know how to, you know, and whatever it is. Yes, that may be truth that blows things up for a little while. But what I find is, is that it's truth that also begins to be breeding ground for intimacy. Mm -hmm. And I've watched over and over again, couples walk through terrible truths that they had to admit to each other, they decided to admit to each other But instead of it breaking up the marriage, it began to build intimacy. And finally, they would be like, you know, I don't understand this, but I feel more trusting to talk to you now than I did when I didn't know what you had done. Sometimes that doesn't happen. But this same friend of wisdom also said to me, he said, if you do tell your spouse the truth, especially if it's a secret, they may leave you. But if you don't tell them the truth, they will definitely leave you Mm. not necessarily divorce, but their heart will finally get pulled away enough that you won't feel connected. And that's the thing is that we've got to bring our hearts back to that person. And maybe it's saying, "Okay, i got to be really honest. And then if you're really honest, you really step in and do here's what I need in this relationship here's what I'm willing to give, and I'm asking that God will help me to give more. Then if it doesn't work, you can can at least know, okay, I'm beginning to learn how to have intimacy. But to have left without that, you will go into another marriage if you do, and you'll create the same kind of relationship. And you'll wonder, how did this happen again? Now, I would say, being that, I'm a therapist, so I think like a therapist. (laughs) Back to the first example or to what we were just talking about, where I'm going to imagine if I marry this person that they will hurt me and can the Holy Spirit help me to love them. I would say in what experience in your life happened before you even met this person you want to marry or before you even met your spouse that you're thinking about trying to work it out with, What happened in your life before you even met them that likely is some of the wound and the hurt that you're now playing out, that's coming out in you? So, for instance, if you felt really hurt and betrayed by your wife and you don't know if you can ever allow them to to come back in again, when was it you felt hurt and betrayed or not loved or not seen or not cared about? maybe even long before you even met your wife, that was a wound that maybe this reminds you of in the spirit. And so you're going, oh, here we go again. Can't do it again. Um, Mm -hmm. Because in the therapy world where I've worked, what we found is you don't always have to go back to all those things, but usually I'm carrying a wound with me. That plays out again in my relationships. And it feels like it's happening now. And maybe it is happening now, but it's extra weighted with all of this other wound from the past. If I can begin to find what let myself heal from that past wound of like, oh, I'm still carrying that with me, find that I do a better job in the marriage in the present, being able to. Let my heart be fully showing up and to forgive what I need to forgive, or at least to move toward honesty with that person.
1: I think what you're illuminating is it's really important because it will really disarm some of the energy around the present moment of the pain. And like you said, help us get to the root cause so that we can take what may be a legitimate hurt um, in the current relationship but it's actually not the deepest thing and as we heal the deepest thing we're able to actually manage the current pain or challenge with a lot more clarity and and even joy and and uh, levity
0: one example for me is um in my growing up one of the things that i found was having this sense of of fear but also a sense of shame and And so in this inner shame that I carried with me from really young as a kid, I couldn't let someone, I thought, I couldn't let someone see me in an unfavorable light. That's why I learned early on to go underground. Because if they see me in an unfavorable light, there comes that shame. And the shame says, they're going to leave. They're going to not love you. And so that was a wound that happened very early on that wasn't healed. One day early on in my second marriage with Laurie, I don't even remember exactly what it was about. But as we were arguing, I felt this, this desire. That I've got to get her to see me not in this unfavorable light, you know, that it, whatever this is, I've got an idea. It wasn't a rational thought. It was just this, it was just this like, God, I've got to get, you know, I've got to change her mind. And as we're going along, she stopped and said, you know, it seems like sometimes when we do this, that you'll take something I've said about me and you turn it back on me. And I remember standing there going, Oh, that's something my first wife used to tell me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, Holy shit. It was like, is this something that's actually been going on in me all my life or even all through my first marriage that I was doing that I didn't even see and literally there was just this inversion that flipped over. And I thought, Oh my gosh. So that was me doing, even in my first marriage, what she said I was, then I just thought, oh, what are you talking about? That's nuts. But here's the second person in a you know an adult relationship who's telling me the same thing. And then what I had to begin to do was to go, I got to go do some investigation of this. I got to figure out what that's coming from because if, Two people are telling me this separately that didn't know the other one said it. There's got to be some truth to that. But it was a good example of me going, wow, I got to find how to heal that wound. Because then when I'm with Laurie and she says, you know, I don't think you're being very responsible about money or whatever, which is one of my things, my triggers. I can be able to stop and go, hang on a second. She's not saying you're an absolute idiot and I'm leaving you. She's saying, "I wish you would sit with me and talk about money more," because she handles more of that. She's saying more of something that she wants different, rather than saying, "I'm an idiot," and she's going to leave me. But it's where my shame brain goes. And if I can do some healing there in the earlier part, then I can begin to go. Okay, wait a minute. This is not what she's saying. That's what the things I would say to men then is that. When you're seeing this and going, I don't know if I can go back to this person or not, it's, it's or I don't know whether I want to start a new relationship or not, either of those is not necessarily the right thing to do if I'm not going to first be willing to look at what is it that I'm bringing to the, the pain of this relationship, and how is it that I'm actually creating some of that pain in this relationship? You know, periodically we'll hear stories. My life almost went down the tubes. I almost made a really bad decision. I almost had an affair or I almost whatever. And, and almost our marriage was almost wrecked and ruined and got a divorce, but God saved us. And I remember when Laurie and I got married, we were talking one day, going, Where's the story that says my marriage did fail? Things did blow up. Things went really bad. And, um, there were a few years of real bad pain. And yet, look how God has redeemed my life. We were like, where are those stories? Because that's been that's been our story. Um, you know, we didn't do everything, I didn't do everything right. In fact, I did a number of things wrong. And no matter where we are in our life, whether there's a, a young man or a young woman or an older man or an older woman listening. Um, it's never too late. And um, um, when I went through my divorce, I mean, gosh, it was painful. And I will say that anybody's considering divorce, it was 10 times more painful than I ever imagined it would be. There's probably that two or three year period afterwards where there's either shame or there's fear or there's just a loneliness. Um, wondering, is my life ever gonna be okay again? And a lot of people- Will pull away. But what I found was it wasn't about blaming the other person or trying to build up enough um, rights on my side to prove that I had the right. None of that really mattered in the long run. It was, what was God going to do with my life in redeeming my life? Not just forgiving. We all get to be forgiven by Jesus, but there's also so much more. There is a redemption. There is this redemption of saying, let me take the stories that you've lived in your life that were painful, and let me turn them into something that will not only bring you closer to me, as if this was God speaking, to bring you closer to me, but it's going to bring a lot of people to healing for 10 years I got to be the senior clinical director at onsite where groups groups of people would come together and do healing work and through the presentations in the morning I would tell pieces of my story and um, what I learned early on was not only did I need to tell pieces of my story so people some people could relate but I let my story unfold the entire week so that it went from here's pain early on in my childhood, to here's pain in my adulthood, to here's redemption that's taken place in my life. And I wanted them to see this bigger picture and um, this story go along. And, and periodically, people would come up to me and say, thank you so much for sharing that. I don't think I would have the courage this week to share if you didn't. But I will never forget one day this man walking up to me and he said, it worked. And I said, what worked? And he said, your story. And I said, you mean the way I told it or what? And he said, no. He said, there's hope for me. He said, if you can screw up as much as you screwed up and you still (laughs) turned out okay, he said, then there's hope for me. (laughs) And I just started laughing. I was like, yeah, you're right. And, um, And it wasn't my doing. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. This part, I guess, of um, I'm learning from the Holy Spirit is it's not just about forgiveness. It's about the Spirit teaching me, how do I love well, even when I don't know the right thing to say? How do I love well, even when I'm angry and I'm hurt and I'm my feelings are hurt or I want to be seen more? How do I still walk in love rather than just somehow being nice to the person? And that's what the part of the role of the Holy Spirit's about is that as the older I get, the more I see that God truly wants to make us more like himself. And when we are, we become more joy-filled and more fulfilled um, rather than just trying to do the right thing. And that's when people come up to us and say, You look different. What what is it about you? Maybe is this wisdom or whatever it is? It's like, that's the Holy Spirit uh, making us more like him. And um, I just love that about God, that it's not just, let me give you a second chance. It's like, let me make you into the person I really have wanted you to be from the very beginning that you will be much happier with and other people will too.
1: As men, there's a particular strength and there's a particular brokenness that we see played out on our storyline. And so I'm curious, in light of what you just shared, as a man, when you think back on your story, can you give an example of a moment or a season or a role where wisdom's long view, right? Today, You could see how you wish you would have operated, like you said, out of love rather than simply do the right thing, or you you did the wrong thing, right? You did kind of the vengeance or the self-protective or the blameless, but in hindsight, you realize this was an opportunity where you, you could have matured and been shepherded by God In this path and process of masculine initiation. And I think I would put it maybe in the category of some regret where, you know, God redeems it. But if you could rewind the clock and be who you are today as a man in this situation where you are being called up as a man, can you give us an illustration or story? Yeah. I,
0: in fact, I love this illustration and I actually haven't shared it very much because it was kind of embarrassing, but it's, it shows how deep it goes into our, into our sinews and our bones and our deep inside of us. Um, when I was in college, a friend of mine asked me to go deer hunting and I'd never gone before. And, and, um, and he said, but what I really love to do is go bow hunting. And I was like, oh, cool. Cause I actually had been shooting targets with a bow for quite a while. And so I was like, oh, that'll be really cool. And so, you know, um, um, not to, uh, for those of you that know about hunting, you you get to paint up your face. And it was very much this male, for me, it felt very much like kind of an initiation because I hadn't done that before, to put on wear camouflage and all this. And I was like, this is so awesome. And so the day we went out, we got in the deer stand for a while, but deer were very, very scarce back in those days, at least in Tennessee. It was a raining day, um, and so with all the leaves really, really wet in the, in the forest, in the woods, we just started walking just to see if we could see something very, very slowly walking along. This guy said, this is the way I've, I've seen some. And sure so enough, he stops me and he says, Look, and up this hill is, comes this big doe that's coming down the hill and it's looking at kind of a path coming right toward us. And uh, he said, If we'll just stand right here, looks like she's going to come right for us and we'll have a great shot. He said, Draw back your bow and hold it. And he said, Don't shoot till I shoot because he was an experienced hunter. Now, I don't know how many people could hear that story. Um, as long as you're not um, turned off by hunting, but but uh, this deer is coming down, and my brain goes from, this is so cool, this is so exciting, to literally, and it is embarrassing to go, my brain starts to go, well, now, wait a minute. If he shoots first, and he hits the deer, it'll be his deer. <laughs> you see where I'm going? Yes. And I was like, but But if I shoot first, right before him, then it'll kind of be my deer. And, um, and, oh, that'll be even better. And so as the deer keeps getting closer, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to try to see if I can figure out where is a good clear shot that's close enough, um, but maybe right before he shoots. And uh, sure enough, I finally, when it seems like close enough, I shoot. Well, you've done any bow hunting and I know you certainly have, you know, there is this place where I started on my chin, but it begins to creep forward because I'm holding it for so long. So the arrow didn't go where I thought it would. It went right under the deer's belly. Um, the guy kind of looks at me like, what did you just do? And then he shoots. Um, but at that point the deer is bolted and his arrow goes into a tree. Um, and the deer takes off and he looked at me and he was like why did you do that we had this deer and then i never told him um mm-hmm. <laughs> i never told him but inside of me was this shame of uh because i wanted the deer for myself mm. i wanted to be the first to shoot um and unfortunately i think there've been a number of times in my life where that's been the thing is that there's been something inside of me, and I don't know if it's just the masculine, but for me, a part of the masculinity of I want to prove myself, mm-hmm. I want to be seen, I want to be honored in some way, not necessarily be crowned like king of of england, but but I want to be seen and heard, and I want to be given some respect. i want to be I want to build my space, I want to grow into what it is. and so. Um, I think there were a number of times that either to do something like that on a self-centered basis or lying about something um, or um, whatever it may have been, seeking really that it was about me is is one of those things for me that stands out um, that I think I tried so that I could be visible. Mm. um and sometimes with very much the wrong reasons and then this take that same example into a marriage or into a relationship with wife and there are times that i'm in an argument and going um you know surely in a minute she's going to understand how irrational her statement is and then there'll be some barb that um she may throw in there that that just gets in there enough and that pain that's still inside of me that's maybe been there for a long time oozes out in the wrong way it's like are you kidding me mm-hmm. you know you say that and then boom out comes something that's really an anger message that's uh that's a harmful that's hurtful and uh, you know and then later on of course when i get settled down, it's like oh I can't, you know, I did not want to say that. or That's not what I meant. And this place of coming from how do I put me first, but act like I'm putting everybody else first was a really hard temptation for me. Um, And I think I've just grown very, very gradually in that area. Still don't have it down perfect by any means.
1: Bill, as you share that story, I'm struck by what's going on in me as a man. In other people's story, we see our own story. And that longing to be seen, to be valued, to be appreciated, to be celebrated, to demonstrate I have what it takes and be recognized for it. Right. It's so core to the masculine ethos. And as I sit here with you, uh I'm just rewinding so many stories of times I've been with you in your teaching, in your counseling, in your meditations, in your friendship, where I have felt known, Mm. I have felt understood, I've felt seen. You know, one, one of my favorite stories of all the scriptures, and from it, a name of God, it's Hagar, when she says, God, you are the one who sees me. Yeah. And she says this profound statement, I have seen the one who sees me. And, and I find myself often relating to God with that name. And so with that idea, here's what I'm wondering. There are a lot of people. That will say one day, probably pretty soon if I could just have one more time with Bill, if I could just sit in his teaching one more time, if I could just be on a floor listening, soaking in his meditation, and feeling the presence of God that he ushers, because I am at peace when I'm with him. I am known when I'm with him and he's gone he hmm. I, I don't get one more one more meal one more laugh one more story one more assurance what would you say to that
0: hmm wow <laughs> that's um that's a tough one and i've even put some thought to it i think sometimes i i struggle with When I have come to a truth myself that in any way might sound religious, God speak, something like that, I've heard people in the past, you know, when I've gone, oh, there's that answer again. When I was a kid and I was um, going to church camp in this beautiful park in Tennessee, East Tennessee, we went on a hike one day and we went on this little narrow path that I always wondered my first year I was there, I wonder where it went. And there was this place where we began to have to kind of go down the side. And, and and finally you come out and you see this big waterfall. Really, that that one was probably about 80 feet tall, but really wide. And then it comes through this pool and then it comes down another kind of a long rap, set of rapids. And I just remember when I came there, My mouth just kind of dropping open and just like, wow. And I was surprised is the word. I was surprised by how beautiful something was that was right there at the end of this little pathway that was probably only about a mile or a little less than a mile away from us at that camp. And I didn't even know it was there. And then to discover that there were many other places like that in that park. That, to me, is the example of the surprise of how many times I've discovered and been surprised by the way God looked at me. Jesus, imagining him being with me, how imagined his response, or even sometimes his response when things that would happen that I thought he would be angry or upset about. And he would say, and Jesus had compassion upon them. And I'd be like, wow, really? The times that I thought Jesus was going to be just done with me and instead feeling him calling to me and I'm going to be like, really? And there actually is an example. This hmm. <laughs> now hit me. Hmm. This one's I haven't told it a lot either because it seems a little bit like oh, what? I was at the beach. Uh, my kids were still little. My first wife and the kids had all gone to the, to the house where we were staying. And I stayed at the beach just a little bit longer, but, you know, getting near sunset. And I just needed to, to stay there a little bit longer. And i never forget sitting there. And I had had this just burning guilt about something. And I finally said, God, I, I have to confess something to you. I was already working as a counselor, kind of just beginning to work as a counselor. And I said, uh, when I talk about God to people, I said, I can do that. Okay. But, but I'm ashamed to say the name Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I just expected the lightning bolt to hit me. And i was just like, this is the worst thing you could possibly say is that you're ashamed of Jesus. And as I sat there and kind of cringed, I'll never forget. Um, As clear as a bell inside somewhere here, I heard him say, I'm not ashamed of you. I just remember even then the tears beginning to fall and going, what? I just told you I was ashamed of you. And he said, I'm not ashamed of you. I was like, how can you say that? And then I began this conversation about, you know, I've known for years I needed to have devotionals and read the Bible. And God, I, I don't want to read the Bible. And I'm always afraid that it's just going to shine a spotlight on something wrong that I've done. And, and again, i never forget him saying to me, I want you to just start in Matthew. with the Gospels. And I just want you to read to find out. And so it was Jesus obviously talking. He just said, I want you just to find out who I am. And every time you feel like there's a spotlight shining on you of guilt, he said, just put it on the shelf for a little while. Just set it aside. Just go. That doesn't matter right now. Who is this guy? Who is this, this Jesus? I would want people to know that when you say, "Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus?" and really begin to get to know, I think you'll find you're surprised over and over and over again. That he's not who you thought he was, or at least he certainly wasn't who I thought he was. Mm -hmm. And um, that he was so much more that transformed my heart, that then began to transform my relationships, continue to get to know who Jesus is. And as that transformation takes place, you'll find that the more and more sacrifice we make in our relationships— by love actually makes us stronger, more reliable, more um, of the person that our wives and other people can say, you know what, you did listen to me and you know me. Um, And then when we do get angry and we get hurt and we get lonely and whatever it is, we share that. We also own that too and don't just pretend is to make sure that we've got that safe person or some people that we can also say, and to God, I don't know what to do with this right now. I am so hurt, or I am so lonely, or I am so afraid. That's also a part of the heart that God has given us. Coming to Him with that full heart and coming to our best friends and our spouse with our full heart is what God longs for us to do. Letting the Holy Spirit teach us how to really love well, not just to pretend that we love well, um, but to learn, if I sacrifice this need, God, how am I going to get my needs met? And then trusting that God will actually meet those needs through people or just through the Holy Spirit. That is the thing I think is my biggest message. That I want my kids to know, I want my friends to know, that I want other people to know that talking about love is not just this big blanket statement. It really comes from the Holy Spirit to say, um, I want you to feel heard and seen and loved. And so that you can do that to your neighbors, to your friends, to your spouse, and not somehow reserve that little place that you got to get back and make uh, and make it happen all by yourself. God, you are, (laughs) you're just full of surprises. You're always up to something. And God, I know in my life um, with cancer and not knowing how many more weeks or months, or if I'll be healed, or if you'll heal me through the Passage way of going into life eternal I don't know but I do know how much you absolutely love us and I am moved by that you have loved me when I was at my lowest or that when I was at my most sinfulness <laughs> you you didn't just try to teach me a lesson you tried to show me what love looked like, what it felt like, what it's like to really be loved when I was most unlovable. And there is nothing, God, that has changed my heart more than that. And I pray, Lord, for the strength and the ability in your spirit enough to do that continually So that whoever it is you bring across my path, it's somebody I might be able to love well. I believe, God, that what seems like an irony that you are so good that you knew the greatest thing that mankind could get would be the gift of yourself, which from any of us would sound like being. uh, full of pride but God to come to know that you are truly a good father, I think that is one of the things I want to pray for others that are maybe hearing this right now. I certainly want to pray that for my boys for my for my daughters who the blended family doesn't seem like so blended it's just just my kids. But God, also those that are maybe hearing this, that are with me right now and with, um, with us in this recording, God, that you might raise up people like you raised me up, I guess, kind of through my mistakes that I made. That you'll continue raising people up once I'm gone and other people are gone and people much, much more influential than me. Come and then go, you'll continue to raise up people to love well, to preach and to teach about who Jesus really is. And you don't need me, but I am so grateful that you've used me in some ways.
1: Father, I pray on this day for Bill. And for me, and for everyone in this fellowship of like-hearted, that through all of this conversation, there would be a stopping and settling in. There'd be a slowing down and settling in, reminded that you meet us, God, right where we are, right as who we have become today. God, I pray that your image in us would be restored and that our imagination in you, God, would be restored. Mm. I pray the gravity of material things be lightened and the relativity of time slow down. I pray that we would know grace to embrace our own finite smallness, in the arms of your infinite greatness. I pray that God's word would feed us and nourish us. Your spirit would lead us into this day and into the life to come.
0: Amen.